Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that you did send Jesus Christ into the world to accomplish a great salvation. And we thank you that all the ends of the earth will in the end bow before Jesus Christ, lovingly or being constrained to do so. And we thank you and praise you that you have been pleased not only to work out and accomplish a great salvation in Jesus Christ, but that you have also been pleased to apply it to the likes of us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, as in this day, on this morning, we have the privilege of looking into the truths of Scripture with regard to the working out of salvation and the application of salvation. We pray that our hearts and our minds might be opened to a better understanding of these things and to your glory as you have been pleased to work out such a salvation and apply it to us. Bless us to this end, we ask, in the good name of Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord and Savior. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, you should have a handout. If you do not have a handout, please uh, indicate your need. And uh, so in this lesson, we're uh, looking at Uh, The working out of uh, redemption, Uh, we've talked about uh, the glory of God in creation and in providence. We've talked about the glory of God as it relates to uh, sin and the fall. And uh, now we come uh, in the course of our study in the catechism uh, to uh, redemption accomplished. And uh, in our next lesson... Uh, This morning we uh, will look at uh, redemption applied. Uh, But because of uh, God's providential working and uh, its results in seeing in the fall and the results of the fall, we see uh, our need of redemption. And uh, so we come to this uh, topic of uh, redemption accomplished. Uh, Questions and answers 20 Uh, through uh, 26. Uh, So uh, let's go through our uh, little drill and uh, responsively go through these questions and answers in the catechism. Uh, Question uh, 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who redeemed the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continues to be, God and man, and continues to be, and continues to be, and continues to Thank you. 
What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Amen. God's glory in the good news of his acts of redemption, redemption accomplished, uh, would be the idea. And uh, the theme verse uh, I've got at the head of the outline, Ephesians uh, 1.7 and 1.12, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, to the praise of his glory. And just as though uh, sin entered the world and uh, God brought that about in his providence for his glory and for the sake of his glory in order to manifest the goodness of his grace in redemption we now come to uh, the topic of how God works out this redemption uh, in His purpose and in His uh, providence. And we have uh, this accomplishment of redemption on one hand, as I've already said, which is the objective side of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, then we have... Uh, the matter of the application of redemption, which is the subjective side of uh, this work of redemption on our behalf. Uh, I'm smiling because uh, you all are facing me uh, that uh, someone in the office uh, came and closed the doors. I remember when I first began teaching at uh, the seminary, look at some of these fellows are smiling and nodding. I'm in the main classroom at the seminary and begin, begin my first class and I hear doors in other parts of the building close. <laughs> so, uh, an indication. Uh, the former librarian reminded me, uh, Amy, who, who's here, that uh, she liked to... Uh, position herself in the library so she could listen <laughs> to the seminary lectures. Uh, so, uh, very comforting, you know, to understand uh, this sort of thing. All right. Uh, uh, back to our topic. <laughs> uh, uh, redemption accomplished. 
And so the question comes then properly in the catechism, you see, after sin and the fall and the results of the fall, the consequences of the fall, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Last time we talked a little bit about the consequences of the fall and the and uh, uh, what occurred in the estates of sin and misery, uh, our estate. And so we need uh, redemption. God does not leave us in the estate of sin and misery. God having, out of His mere good pleasure, and it's always the good pleasure of God, is it not? Uh, the root of God's taking actions is His good pleasure. Uh, and uh, His good pleasure is rooted in eternity past, as you see from the Catechism. God having, out of His mere good pleasure, nothing else added, simply His good pleasure, from all eternity, elected some to everlasting light. And so we come to the great doctrine, doctrine of divine election. Uh, if uh, we were to put this on the board, uh, you'd have as the uh, overall subject or topic uh, sovereignty. And uh, underneath, directly underneath sovereignty, sovereignty uh, encompasses everything in the universe. Uh, under the uh, topic of sovereignty comes predestination. Predestination has to do with God's moral creatures. And uh, under predestination uh, come, comes the, t the topics of election and reprobation. Double predestination. See, we hold to these this doctrine of double predestination. And so, what the catechism is telling us is that out of the mass of fallen humanity, God chooses some. Alright? It's as though you had, had a great pie and you, you cut a swath through the pie and a, and a big chunk of that pie uh, represents God's elect. And uh, this is how we would view it. And uh, the others whom God, we say, passes by, they would represent uh, the reprobate. Uh, uh, under this topic, again, of predestination, election, and reprobation, God, out of His mere good pleasure, elects some. He does not elect all. And uh, you might ask the question, why? And you have to simply go back to God's good Pleasure. Uh, this is His pleasure. And, uh, of course, He does all for His own glory. It's not your uh, good pleasure that's of supreme interest to God in these matters. It's His good pleasure. And it's not primarily your interest and uh, puffing you up in a matter of speaking uh, that comes first, but it's God's glory that comes first. He does all of these things for the manifestation of His glory so that 
he would have creatures, and this is one way I think we can look at it, so that God would have creatures who would understand and see his glory, and there would be creatures to whom he would be able to manifest his glory. And it's his good pleasure to do it in this particular way as uh, set forth in the Catechism. Out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace. Now, now you see uh, how the Catechism puts it. Did enter into a covenant of grace. And a question you and I would have is how is this covenant of grace worked out? Uh, well, the proof texts help us here uh, that this covenant of grace is uh, made with the elect through the Redeemer, through a covenant head who is Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, this, it turns out, is the teaching of Scripture. Did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And uh, so it, it comes down to this uh, in the Catechism answer. Uh, the proof text. He chose us, see? Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus, speaking to those who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ, and he's including himself. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. See? Why in the world are you here? <laughs> see? God's good pleasure. God's choice before the foundation of the world. Uh, this is startling and amazing uh, that this uh, should be the case. Uh, Romans 5, 14 and 19. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not in the like of the transgression of Adam. Uh, death reigned even over those who did not sin like Adam sinned. Okay. Adam was a public figure and they sinned in him and with him. And, and uh, we are included. Uh, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay. Now, now we get down to the root of the matter. Uh, Adam is a type of Christ. Adam foreshadows Jesus Christ in his person. How is it that Adam foreshadows Jesus Christ in his person? Uh, Paul breaks this down in Romans chapter 5. Uh, the idea is of headship. Adam is the head of all of the human race. Christ is the head of all of His people. The similarity between Adam and Christ is the similarity in headship. That's where the similarity ends. <laughs> because what happened? Adam sinned. And of course, there's no similarity between Adam and Christ in that Regard, because Christ did not sin. And so uh, the similarity is in headship. 
And this is what the, te- the uh, teaching of Scripture is. Uh, again in Romans 5. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. See, there's the headship. Constituted sinners uh, by the sin of Adam. So, by the one man's obedience, the many, see, that would be the elect, the many will be made righteous. And so, uh, uh, the balance, you see, headship is uh, the similarity between Adam and Christ. And it's because of this representative nature on one hand of Adam, in Adam all sin... Uh, similarly, in the representative nature of Christ, you and I are made alive. This is the idea. It's nothing you and I have done. It's in and through Christ, the Redeemer. Uh, question 21. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continueth to be uh, God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. And First uh, Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In order for lost human beings to be saved and to be reconciled to God, it is imperative that God becomes a man. And uh, this is the startling truth of Scripture. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God. Now remember uh, what we learned about God. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God, as the confession tells us, is a most pure spirit without uh, body, parts, or passions. Uh, uh, someone uh, reminded us, uh, as my wife and I were talking, of the children's uh, catechism. Uh, what is God? God is a spirit. And He does not have a body like men. Uh, quite different. In order for human beings, for men and women to be saved, God must become man. And uh, it's startling from this perspective that, as the confession says, uh, God is a most pure spirit, once again, without body parts or passions. God does not have a body. And in our language, in the Bible, when we speak about God, we impute to God uh, body parts. We speak uh, about God as though He does have a body, and we impute to Him bodily parts. We speak of the hand of God, 
and the eyes of God and the ears of God and the arm of God, etc. You see, uh, these are all metaphors, uh, anthropomorphisms, okay? That's what we call them. And we speak about God in these terms. Uh, and God condescends, you see, this, this is the mo- part of the marvel of the Bible, that God condescends uh, to come to us and speak about Himself in the Bible in terms that you and I can understand. See? It's uh, uh, in terms of using metaphors. And in this case, it's the special metaphor of the anthropomorphism. Uh, speaking about God in uh, terms of human form. And uh, we, we easily understand that this is the case. But we also impute to the most pure spirit who is without body, parts, and passions, we also impute to the most pure spirit who is without human emotions, hear me clearly here now, folks, Without human emotions, God is not a man. And God is a spirit, and He does not have a body like men. We impute to God human emotions. And uh, we call these, uh, by another special term, uh, anthropopathisms. Okay? Some of you have heard that uh, terminology. But it's another a type of metaphor, all right? Uh, and God condescends to speak to us in the Bible utilizing this kind of language. See? And so he, he talks about his grief and his anger and uh, these kinds of things in terms of human emotions. Now, uh, here's the key. Jesus Christ, as the Catechism tells us, being the eternal Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, being a most pure spirit without body, parts, or passions, the eternal Son of God became man. Became man. And the only way that the God of the universe could actually enter into this world and experience human pain is to become a man. This is the startling truth of God. The only way the great God of heaven could enter into the world and bleed like a man is to become a man. Do not, see, I I, I caution you here, do not take the step of attempting to bring God down and make God like us. God is the one who took that step. God did that. And in order for God 
to take the step to come down to us. To feel the same kind of grief you feel. To shed the kind of tears you shed at the death of a loved one. To bleed uh, from bodily wounds as you and I do is for the great God of heaven to become a man. And I submit to you, if you do not properly understand the concept, as I just briefly attempted to lay it before you, the concept of the anthropopathism, you do not properly appreciate the Incarnation. And what God has done in actually becoming a man. What else does the Catechism tell us? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be, both God and man, in two distinct natures, in one person forever. This is the classic doctrine of Christ. Two distinct natures in one person forever. And there is no intermingling of deity and humanity to get scrambled eggs, to get some kind of third type of entity. No, no. Two distinct natures in one person forever. And the wonder of it is, as we continue to go through the catechism, is that our Lord Jesus Christ now and forever is in this bodily form. And when He returns from heaven, from the right hand of God the Father, He returns in this bodily form to gather us to Himself. Praise be unto God. And so, uh, the Scriptures tell us uh, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, uh, man, uh, men, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word be, uh, was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. For in him, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And of course, uh, He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. He uh, exists forever now in this bodily form. And uh, going back to Colossians 2.9... For in, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, uh, this is possible, friends, because uh, uh, God is everywhere. And you know that this is the case. Uh, uh, if you go to heaven, God is there. If you descend into hell, God is there. Uh, there is no place you can go uh, from which you can ex escape the presence of the living God. And at the same time, 
God is not like plastic wrap that you draw <laughs> out of a roll. He's not spread thin anywhere. Uh, plastic wrap, you stretch and it's spread thin. You, you stretch it and you put it over a bowl or a container. Uh, God is not spread thin. God is present, fully present, everywhere. Uh, do you hear what I'm saying? God is fully, completely present everywhere. Now, uh, that concept is uh, a little bit mind-boggling, uh, but uh, because God is fully and completely present everywhere, it's easy for us to be able to say, and it's easy for us, for the Bible uh, to be able to say, the whole fullness of God dwelt in Jesus Christ. The fullness of God was present in Jesus Christ bodily there, because God can be fully present or is fully present everywhere. Okay? Uh, this is uh, the great doctrine uh, that's given to us. Now, uh, 22, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man, taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Christ became man by taking to Himself a true body and reasonable soul. Okay. Uh, and by reasonable soul, uh, the catechism means a reasoning soul. Okay? A soul uh, that is alive and is able to reason, okay? uh, communicate, etc., etc. A reasoning soul. So our Lord Jesus Christ, by becoming man, took to Himself a body and soul. In order to be a human person, Jesus Christ, as a man, had to have a human body and a human soul. It's not as though the divine nature is somehow hooked to a human body. No, that's not the idea. It's a human body and soul are together with divinity uh, in one person. But God, God becoming a man, see, this is the important piece to understand as far as the catechism is concerned here, is that uh, human beings are made of body and soul or body and spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ became. This is uh, what occurred. And uh, this is the teaching of uh, the catechism, uh, taking the teaching of the Bible. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. Okay? Uh, not by ordinary generation. And because uh, Jesus Christ was not conceived by ordinary generation, the pollution of original sin was not transmitted to our Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world holy, harmless, and undefiled, unlike any other human person 
subsequent to the fall. So he was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin, as we've already said. Uh, so uh, the proof text now. Uh, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. See? He partook of our humanity, that through death he might conquer the great enemy of death. And uh, Luke 23.46 you notice here. Uh, the idea of a true body and reasonable soul. On the cross, when our Lord Jesus Christ uh, died, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit, or I commit My soul. So it, it could have been stated in this fashion, uh, so that there was a separation of body and spirit. That's the definition of death. Okay? Death as an event. And, uh, of course, Jesus Christ existed in that unnatural state of separation of body and soul or body and spirit for a period of time. He remained under the power of death, as the Catechism uh, earlier uh, puts it. Uh, so the the, uh, the proof text again, uh, uh, Luke one thirty one and thirty five. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, uh, anticipating a question here. Uh, the question would be, uh, even though our Lord Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, Mary bore in uh, her person uh, the consequences of sin. And so was, why was it that depravity was not uh, transmitted from Mary to uh, the Lord Jesus, even though he was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the answer, it seems, is in the text here. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And uh, the idea here would be that sin uh, uh, and depravity uh, in the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ is subdued or held back by the power of the Holy Spirit in this conception so that depravity is not transmitted from her to the Lord Jesus. I think that's the only reasonable explanation that you can give here. And then Hebrews 4.15 uh, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, now, uh, uh, there's some concern about the language uh, here in Hebrews uh, with regard to the translation. Uh, because uh, I, don't, I don't believe uh, that Jesus in any way 
succumb to or uh, was even tempted to succumb to temptation the way you and I are. He was wholly harmless and undefiled. Uh, but the text in Hebrews uh, can be translated in this way. Oops. Are we okay? Okay, we're good. All right. Don't, don't like these little spills with little ones. <laughs> All right, back to Hebrews 4.15. And tempted as we are yet without sin. And, and the text may be uh, translated this way. Tested in every way that you and I are. In other words, our Lord Jesus Christ was put into circumstances and situations where the test was always there. And uh, the problem with you and me is that when we enter those circumstances where the test is present, and uh, you, you've heard it, uh, have you not? Testing, testing, testing. And God puts you in the circumstance and in the background you can hear testing, testing, testing. And too often we allow the test to become a temptation to which we succumb. This is what happens. In the wilderness, our Lord Jesus Christ went through a period of Testing. It's the same word. And he never allowed any of those tests to become a temptation to sin. What's the root of temptation? What's in our hearts? This is what the Bible tells us. And it was never in the heart of the Lord Jesus to succumb to a temptation. Although he was tested in every way that you and I are tested. Okay, now, uh, in a striking way, uh, we come to uh, what we might call the heart of the Gospel. You, you might wonder about this, because this is not uh, a Gospel presentation uh, that you and I are accustomed to. This is not the type of gospel presentation that you and I might even utilize with someone. What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and as of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And so now the catechism uh, breaks out uh, uh, these offices, the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, and uh, uh, speaks about our Lord Jesus Christ uh, carrying out these offices in his estate of humiliation and in his estate of exaltation. And uh, in our studies in the morning now, uh, we're looking at uh, as we're, we're going through the catechism here, uh, the three offices. And uh, in our worship services, our two worship services, I've already talked about, uh, you see, Christ's humiliation uh, on our Sabbath morning worship. And uh, uh, tonight, uh, the Lord willing, 
uh, will speak about Christ's exaltation. Okay? And uh, uh, those two pieces that come to us at the end of answer uh, 23. Uh, quickly now, the uh, proof text under uh, question 23. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Okay? Uh, a prophet like Moses was going to come on the scene. And we learn from Acts 3.22 that that prophet is indeed our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Moses foreshadowed Jesus Christ. Moses the prophet looked ahead and foreshadowed the coming of the great prophet, our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7, This one was made a priest with an oath, by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Uh, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And uh, uh, this is also uh, Psalm uh, 110. And uh, Psalm 110 is quoted in uh, Acts 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool uh, from your uh, uh uh, make your enemies your footstool. Okay, the, the idea of a king. Uh, so uh, Jesus Christ uh, carries out the office offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. And uh, uh, this is again what we learn uh, from Scripture. Next page. Uh, well, uh, maybe maybe I should uh, uh, just refer to uh, Philippians 2, 8, and 9. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. So there's a humiliation of Jesus Christ. Uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, one of the nice things about a uh, catechism study like this. And uh, I think also one of the nice things about uh, catechism preaching is that you validate from Scripture the truth of the Word of God which is given to us in the catechism. And uh, this, this is important for us to understand that we're not just pulling statements out of the air, as it were, but these statements are the truth of God, as this truth is called from a number of different scriptures. And uh, you and I should understand uh, that this is the case. Okay, question 24. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. One of the proof texts is 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, Peter has been speaking about the good salvation that is given to us in Christ. The prophets, okay, the prophets who prophesied about the grace of God that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating 
when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and and the subsequent glories. Uh, By what spirit did the prophets prophesy? The spirit of Christ. And this is part of the work of Christ as a prophet. And it was not only uh, in his humiliation as he walked in the world and spoke the word of God and spoke with authority, not like the scribes, uh, but uh, spoke as one with authority. Uh, uh, he, He spoke the prophetic word. He was exercising his office as a prophet. Uh, relating uh, the way of salvation and pointing to himself. And in uh, the prophets of the Old Testament, he spoke by his Spirit, relating the way of salvation uh, to the people of God then and to us uh, who are able to go back and read the Old Testament prophets. Our Lord Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, Uh, spoke through those prophets. And our Lord Jesus Christ uh, spoke through the apostles and uh, the prophets of the New Testament. And so all of the Word of God in a manner of speaking can be said to be the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need a red-letter edition of the Bible. (laughs) All the words of The Bible are the words of Christ. This is part of his work as the great prophet. And uh, relating to us by his word uh, and his spirit, uh, the will of God uh, for our salvation. And uh, we're going to get into the idea of uh, the work of the spirit of Christ uh, bringing to bear the word on our own hearts uh, in the next hour. Uh, Question 25. How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Christ once offered himself a sacrifice on the cross. Well, we understand this is the case. To satisfy divine justice. In other words, the justice of God requires that your sins be punished. The justice of God requires that your sins and my sins be punished. And your Lord Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross to pay for your Sins particularly. Not just to pay for sins in general. You see, the story would be this. That if Jesus Christ 
has not paid for your sins, then divine justice requires that you yourself pay for your sins. And if Jesus Christ has not paid for your sins, which you come to realize by the gift of faith and by believing in Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ has not paid for your sins, your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, and you will pay for those sins yourself. And because those sins are an affront to the infinite God, you will spend eternity paying for those sins. See? That's, that's what takes place. But wonder of wonders. To satisfy divine justice and reconcile us those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to God. God has things against us, our sin, and to reconcile us to God. What did Jesus Christ do? He offered Himself a sacrifice, and He paid my penalty and your penalty. And he continues to exercise the office of a priest in making continual intercession for us to pray for you and for me. This morning at breakfast we were talking about uh, our children, those of us who were at the table together and our daughter going to Moldova and uh, 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 other children going to places like South Sudan. And uh, the question was, well, what do you do? You trust in the Lord. <laughs> and you recognize. You are not only praying for them, but who else is praying for them? Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, is interceding for us. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Jesus Christ, the great King of the universe, is in the process of subduing all of His enemies to Himself. And the last enemy is the enemy of death. And it too will be subdued. Praise be unto God again. And as 1 Corinthians 15.25 says, For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under his feet. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He is ruling and defending us and restraining and conquering all of His and our enemies. What a wonder that is. All of His and our enemies. He's restraining them. We're in a privileged position as God's people. And His rule and reign is covering us. It's covering us. It's like a great tent that's overshadowing us and protecting us as God sees fit and as God desires. And that's our great position uh, we're going to come back in uh, the next hour and see a little bit more of uh, how uh, Christ in His rule as King subdues us to Himself. Uh, but it's quite striking, isn't it, that uh, the Gospel here is presented in, in this fashion, uh, that Jesus Christ is the great prophet, priest, and king. These are the objective uh, things uh, with regard to Jesus Christ that we quite clearly see in uh, the Gospel. Uh, how He uh, relates to us the way of salvation. Uh, how He Himself sacrifices Himself uh, for His people. And uh, how He rules over and protects His people and draws them uh, to Himself. This is the Gospel. This is the Gospel. And it is the gospel as it's related to us in the shorter catechism. And it's the relation, the relating of, I should say, the glory of God in God's great accomplishing of salvation. So hang on and stick with me. Because next hour we're going to see how this wonderful salvation is personally applied to you and to me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people here. Thank you for the fact that we can study together. And I pray that even though we're pressing hard and uh, uh, working hard at these matters, that uh, you're pleased to uh, 
keep us together uh, on uh, the subjects that we're talking about. And I pray that that will continue. Bless us to this end, we pray. In the good name of Jesus Christ the Lord, amen.